The Seahawks bounce back in a big way on Sunday, beating the 49ers in a wild game and improving to 4-8 in the process. Can Seattle get the season back on track? 710 ESPN's Stacey Rost joins us to break it all down. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my talented producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? What is up? We are doing fantastic, Jackson. How are you? I'm doing great, man. You know, Seattle has lacked a signature win this season. It's always seemed, at least since Pete Carroll got here, that the Seahawks were going to make every single game interesting. For the most part, they have for 10 straight years. And then it would seem like they were going to win. It was always kind of a surprise when they would lose those crazy games. But the trademark magic has just been absent this year. Uh, even the couple of close games they've had with Washington, Tennessee, they kind of lacked the spark that we're used to getting from with this team. But this game, this had all the trimmings of a classic Seahawks foolishness fest. We had Travis Homer's long fake punt TD. Shout out, Mike. Let's fucking talk about it, dude. Let's talk about all right. that. All right. I just, just want to say, just a quick interjection here. I said on this show that Travis Homer had been Seattle's most game-breaking running back this season. And while there was plenty of satire associated with that statement, was there? it has come to pass that that is the truth. I mean... Am I wrong? Well, you know, you know, that's an amazing thing to say about a player with zero offensive touchdowns, but he has two long special teams touchdowns, so, you know. Hey, who's, who's Seattle's most dependable third down back at the moment? Who's making plays, Jackson? Hey, Who's turning third and sevens I've, into fourth and ones? I've I've been saying for weeks on this show that if you need to turn third and 19 into fourth and seven, Travis Homer is your guy. He's amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, we also had Pete going for it on a fourth down that he probably shouldn't have. That was great. We had a million fumbles. George Kittle went bananas. Adrian Peterson scored a touchdown as the Seattle Seahawks. We had a safety. Gerald Everett somehow turned two touchdowns into two turnovers. D. Eskridge had his first touchdown. There was a goal line stand to win it. Man, it was like all of the unused crazy for this season just got pumped into this game. And it was awesome. It just, it felt right. But perhaps most importantly, the wind breathed some life into a tough season for Seattle. And joining me to discuss that and a whole lot more is one of the brightest voices on the Seattle sports scene. Stacy Rost. Stacy, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I loved the uh, the joke earlier, Mike. That was a good one. Yeah, you know, um, that's really nice. Thanks for that. You're welcome. I also love the introduction. We were um, one of my coworkers, Curtis, and I were joking about the game, and like, do you guys remember the SNL sketch that Bill Hader used to do when he was Stefan? <laughs> mm-hmm. It felt like that was this game, and I'm sure many other people yeah. have made that joke, but it was like a this game has everything. That's hilarious. Just, yeah. It really did have everything. New York's hottest new club is Seahawks yeah, versus Seattle's 49ers. Seattle's hottest new club is Lumen Field. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, between your Twitter presence and your on-air work, I know a lot of the folks listening are familiar with you already, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you're at? Okay. Uh, I don't know that they're that familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, they should be. Um, uh, yeah, well, I got into sports late, did not intend to get into um sports coverage, much less sports radio. Um, and uh, I started out 
do you want like the in-between steps like the horrible jobs yes like, yeah yes okay cool so um i uh graduated college and uh worked at the zoo woodland park zoo shout out to animals and uh <laughs> thanks for the big job. ups to all the animals out there big ups to animals big ups to penguins i miss you guys and uh, then I got a job at some random startup where it was like um, writing a ton of articles. And uh, it was during Seattle's, uh, it was about 2012, 13. So you're talking the peak of like just ahead of the Super Bowl, right? Just ahead of Super Bowl 48. Um, and then I got, uh, I I was like, I, I need to be covering this all the time. The sports articles I'm editing for this startup are my favorite. Like, I don't like anything else and I want to do that. And so uh, went to CBS Radio, was a reporter for them, a digital uh, producer, and then uh, went over to 710 in the same role and then uh, started filling in nights, doing um, uh, random segments for things. I mean, there was a lot of like build up to being finally on uh, in middays, but. Okay. Uh, yeah. I got it. I got to circle back. All right. It sounds like penguins were your favorite animals to work with. Is that, is that accurate? At well, the zoo? let me tell you what, I didn't work with any animals. Okay. So when I say worked at the zoo, I mean, like I held a walkie talkie. There are four jobs that you do. One is operate the carousel. It's a nightmare and I never want to experience that again in my life. The other one is uh, operating the dino exhibit or whatever rotating exhibit they have. No real dinosaurs, all animatronic. Thank you for and clarifying. You're welcome. And then the third and fourth things are you're either working the north or south gate of the zoo. And it is a nightmare. Like it is, you get people, every other person complains about the ticket prices and every other person has the same joke. And the two jokes that everyone say are as follows. I'm, I'm telling you, if you've gone to the zoo and you've said this joke, the person laughing was being polite because we heard it 10,000 times that day. The first joke is, let's say it's like, uh, you know, a husband comes up with his wife and his two kids. He'll go, uh, one adult and three kids, wink, implying that he's the third kid. Uh, that's the one joke. And then the second joke is, uh, can we leave these ones with the monkeys? Or like they'll point to their kids and ask if they can leave them behind. And then you have to laugh. So so now I have your bases covered. Just okay, never good. say those so two you've things. So got, you've got yeah. lots of practice for laughing mm -hmm. at our bad jokes on this show. Yeah, it makes it easy to work with Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, it's okay. We love Jake. But let's talk about this game. There were so many wild moments. What stood out to you the most? Oh, um, that uh, at one point, the team that was facing a second and 43 won the game. That, like, <laughs> that fact is uh, baffling to me. I guess, you know, you would think it would be Gerald Everett fumbling three times, the same player or turning the ball over three times. You would think that would be a big part of it. Um, I got to say, it was just the offense getting going. I mean, starting with Adrian Peterson's touchdown, I don't know how replicable that kind of performance is, kind of catching fire as the second half progressed. I think they're, they're I don't know at one point, at what point in the game, but there was a point in the game where I wasn't expecting them to be done on a third down attempt. And I was like, okay, now we're looking at a different kind of Seahawks team. I don't know if they're going to do it again. Right. But. Well, no, I, I appreciate you pointing that part out because it has felt a little hopeless. I mean, they're statistically, yeah. they've been atrocious on third downs. 
And I mean, third down is the hardest down. I get that, but uh, they've been so much worse than the rest of the league, to be honest. And and Seattle's never been a great third down team, but it's never been anything like this. And it, and it did kind of feel like, like in the doldrums of, you know, the Mariners, it would be like if they if I turned on a game and they were down three to nothing, I was like, oh, well, they're not going to win because they're not going to be able to score three runs, much less keep the other team from scoring anymore. It's kind of how I felt about third downs with Seattle. Like, oh, they didn't get the first down oh, on so first or second. So, you know, I guess I guess we'll see how far Dixon can kick it this time. Yeah, if it's not like a third and two, you're already thinking like, and even then you yeah, don't even know. Then. Even, even then, then you then. don't know. Yeah, yeah. And, and that correlates with my biggest takeaway, which was Russell Wilson finally looks back. Looks like he is back to being very close to, to what he is. I mean, his his numbers are good, but I think even they belie how good he was in this game. He completed mm. 30 of mm-hmm. 37 passes. He had two touchdowns and an interception. But let's be real. That interception was a touchdown pass. I mean, that was a hit your receiver in the numbers at the one-yard line with no one near him. <laughs> and, and I don't know how Gerald Everett managed to hacky sack parkour that thing into a defender's hands, but... That should have been a 31 for 37, three touchdown, no interception game. And that, I think, is a bit more reflective of the Russell Wilson that we saw. How close to peak Russ did he look to you? Um, Not 100%. I don't know if that's how you felt as well. There was like one weird pass. God, who was it? It was going toward the south end zone. And it was like a, a little kind of, um, it just didn't look sharp. Uh, on like a screen. It was something weird where I thought, ooh, that looked a little bit off. I'll have to look back. But um, but overall, I mean, that 33-yarder to DK, the touchdown to Tyler were two moments where I thought, this looks like Russ again. And he's doing it a couple times over the course of this game. And um, I mean, outside of a hand, maybe that one pass and maybe one more, everything looked fine, right? It didn't look like uh, when you were watching Green Bay where things were just sailing over guys. And you were like, is is his finger okay? Like, is this fine? Um, and so that was probably, I agree, the most encouraging thing by far. Yeah, yeah. and The passes themselves looking fine. Right, right. And, and that, I, I mean, I am with you. I don't think he was 100% Russell Wilson, but it felt like 90% at least. Yeah, and, oh, at least. And the thing that was so baffling for me over the last three games is I kind of expected there to be some errancy with the throws. I just... It's the middle finger of your throwing hand. There's just going to be times where you, the ball just doesn't go where you want it to go. And I, I had the patience for that. I was so disconcerted by some of the decision-making in those three games, and I wondered how related those two issues were. His decision-making seemed really, really sharp. I don't remember any forced bad throws or him looking off an open receiver to try some high-leverage play down the field and tight coverage. Like He, he took what was there and – to your point, he kept the offense moving forward. Yeah, no, and, and to the decision-making point, I, I wonder if it's two uh, unrelated things that are both resulting in some poor decision-making at times. Last year, it felt like, okay, you cannot make a mistake. If you make a mistake or turn the ball over, not only might Pete Carroll want to turn more to the run and you don't get to throw the ball nearly as much as you want, but also this defense is really struggling. So can they sustain things if you turn the ball over? You have to score on every drive. And I think mentally that does something to you. It's kind of, I feel like, what happened a little bit with Patrick Mahomes to start the season for Kansas City. This year, I don't, I, I, I can't think that that was the same reasoning right yeah. I can't think that it that um I mean there might have been this feeling of I have to be back and I have to prove that I'm back um 
it's just that for someone who talks, speaks so much about get, being in the right mentality, being in the right mindset, decision-making is even more weird. I'm not judging weird decision-making by Jared Goff. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, right. So, right. so when it's something from Russell Wilson, you think, what kind of pressure can this person who has spent, I don't know how much money <laughs> and time working on this, what kind of pressure is this person feeling to make this happen? Because we know he's not a bad quarterback. He's been there for a decade. So what mentally is going into this? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, my, my kind of theory. We had uh, your old coworker, Paul Gallant on last week and, and we were talking about it. And my, my theory was like, you know, a lot of times I like to make small to medium sized sports bets. And, and the goal is to just win a few more than you lose and you end up ahead. But if I go on a cold streak, I have a tendency, like a lot of gamblers, I think, to try and get it all back. And so you try and go, okay, well, I lost six bets in a row, so I'm down, whatever. I'm going to try and get it all back on this one. And now you're deeper in the hole and you're pressing, you're pressing. And and I wonder how much that had to do with it. Paul was saying he thinks Russell Wilson is addicted to the big play and goes for it sometimes when it's not there. What was nice to see is that he made the big plays when they were available. It's not like he said, okay, I can't do that anymore. I have to be a checkdown artist. But he took the easy stuff as well. And and it looked, even from the very first play, when after all the criticism of the lack of targets that DK Metcalf's been receiving, uh, first play was just like, here's an automatic guaranteed bubble screen DK. It lost a yard, but even I was encouraged by that. Three completions for four <laughs> yards to start the game. I know. Nice. I, I nice. was kind of into it, though. Yeah. You know, to the big play point, it, it's not something that I criticize too much because it's like, well, it it's what has won you so many games before. I am fine if the quarterback's biggest strength is like a bomb downfield. Like I am very okay with a quarterback uh, being able to just drop in like a rainbow pass and it looks beautiful. Um, He does obviously not excel over the middle of the field, but I guess where my biggest, I don't know how, how you feel about this, and I wish I was more of an X's and O's person, but my biggest kind of confounding feeling stems from this idea. I was reading an article in The Athletic by Mike Sando, who looked at Russell Wilson's numbers from week nine onward. Um, and uh, and there is a, a stark difference where you kind of starting with that game against the Bills, everything falls apart. And you've seen good moments from him. Um, the opener against Indianapolis was a solid game for this team. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, but I, I think I have the hardest time figuring out how much should I read into a quarterback struggling over the middle of the field when it's like, but you've you've been in the league for a decade. Like you're telling me that defenses figured Russell Wilson out in week nine of last year. Right. That suddenly like Buffalo cracked the code and had the blueprint for beating Russell Wilson and figuring it out. And it took nine years to get there. I do think there's an aspect to it where it's like, okay, something's changed about Russell's game or the offense or the play calling, whatever it is. Like Russell has the stats bear it out. Numbers don't lie. Russell has struggled since then, especially on third down. Mm Mm-hmm. But, but uh, I, the hardest, I, I don't know if that's how you feel. It's just the hardest time for me figuring out um, what's changed because I just, I can't think that it's just a puzzle that's been solved. When you look at that game as a whole, he played very well. The offense was finally functional, repeatedly functional. That first half was ass. It was. It was really it was. bad. And so that is the second consecutive game against the 49ers 
where you have a first half that just looks like a cow pie and a second half that looks like a competent football team. Third consecutive game against the 49ers because their last game of the season last year was the same thing. They look yep. they look like dog shit in the first half. How badly do you think that both Russ and DK needed that completion on third and Oh my god, you third saw it. whatever it was. You because saw it. It, from it feels DK. like that offense, their offense has been balancing on the fulcrum of the connection between those two for a long time and as soon as they get on the same page, as soon as Russ is hitting those outs on on second and short, third and short, DK's hauling them in. He's got it over the top. They look like an NFL caliber offense again. Right. And it's like, and how much of that is too different? from The thing is, it's not vastly different from other great offenses. Like every great offense is unless you're like, a, I don't know, Denver when they had a million and five quarterbacks, it still didn't win them or excuse me, wide receivers. And it still didn't win them a Super Bowl. But like normally you're going to have like your top guy you're going to go to and the other team's going to try to take them out like kind of football basics. It's not complicated. Um, and I, the difference can sometimes be either a great offensive line or a great offensive coordinator to make sure that guy gets open or to make sure that you've got a good run game to offset it or, or what have you. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how you guys feel about Shane Waldron this year. I'm still figuring it out, but um there's been plenty of times where you just wonder what was the game where DK didn't have any attention. Was that that? Uh, there's Green there's been a few, no. but Washington was the one where the announcers yes. were just hammering on it all game. Yeah, and you just watch it and you're like, I can't think. You're, I, I don't. It's just, I, I. It feels inexcusable. I think with really great wide receivers, they're a lot like great shooters in basketball, and sometimes you just need to get that shooter into a rhythm. And they need to see a few go in. And that's why I was so happy to see them dial up a couple of easy ones for DK. I think DK. Russ is like that too. Absolutely. I think you got to give them some easy some easy wins early on to say, okay, yeah, this works. I feel good. The connection is there. These are still human beings, right? It's so easy yeah. to reduce them to dots on a chart. But these guys play with emotion. And I think that you see... DK play a lot better later in the game when he's involved early on and he feels like he's in the flow and that the game plan gives a shit about him and, and he's got a few catches and he goes out and then he makes that great catch uh, down the right sideline at the one yard line and a couple of contested catches in traffic on shorter passes. And that encourages Russ to keep going his way. And I think that started to feed on itself. And then, I mean, you got to see Tyler Lockett have a great game and it didn't feel like a forced great game. Like s some of the games that Lockett's had a nice stat line at the end, it's felt like, well, it's because he's the only one that's getting thrown to. And yeah, he had six catches for, you know, 80 yards in a given game, but it took 16 targets to get there type of thing. Everything just felt natural in this one. Well, it was nice seeing both DK and Tyler uh, have a, over 60 yards and they, they could have had more obviously, but sometimes it feels boomer bust for either of them. Like Tyler will go off and have 170 yards and you'll be talking about how great it was. And weirdly you're right about Tyler Lockett. where like some of his uh, games with the most receiving yards. I think like two of three or losses or something weird like that. Um, and it 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 was nice to feel that both were involved because those are your two weapons. Those are your two best weapons on offense. You don't have your running back. Uh, you don't have your backup running backs that are able to replicate that in the way that other offenses like Baltimore can because they have a better offensive line. Um, and it just feels like sometimes they aren't able to capitalize on both in the same game. I, I totally agree. I mean, anyone that's 
owned either of them in fantasy football knows we'll tell you that knows about the <laughs> boom bust nature of having those guys. And you know what was really encouraging to me while we're on the subject of the receivers was D Eskridge. And mm-hmm. it's great to point to his touchdown. He actually made a nice play on that touchdown. You know, it was it wasn't just like oh whoever happened to be the receiver was going to score there. He caught the ball, made a nice move. But he had a couple other nice catches where he looked like a competent wide receiver, like someone that can be a weapon by getting open, by beating people with athleticism, which for a guy, his size, that's what you have to do. So for the first time we actually saw, okay, this, this is what they saw in this guy when they chose to draft him in the second round. Well, it was really exciting to know what you could see. Like we talked to, so we talked to his, uh, head coach at Western Michigan, who was, I mean, like, I feel like we try to talk to everyone's head coach or, I don't know, position coach or or what have you. And that was one of the most kind of, you could feel that he was like beaming in the interview. Like he really, really, yeah. really believed in, in D. And you were in, and sometimes you don't, like sometimes you talk to a head coach and you're like, I don't think this guy thinks that this player is like that great. Mm-hmm. Like you can just kind of get the vibe, but but you got the feeling that this, this person loves this player. And um, you, you wondered if it would be then the Rams go and take Tutu Atwell and you're like, did they want D Eskridge? And and so you wonder like, is this the perfect fit for Shane Waldron and what they can do here? And then you never you never saw you, you never got a chance to because he was out for so long. And I think a lot of it's working him just working his way back. But I really love to see more of him as the year progresses. Not only because the offense could use it, but because uh, it sure would make you feel a lot better about not taking Creed Humphreys. <laughs> oh my! I, I, right, right. That's sort of what we're battling against here. That, right. That that's going to be a tough one to overcome. But I mean, it sounds so obvious when you say it out loud. But it's a nice reminder of how explosive this offense can be when the quarterback is healthy and when he's clicking with his receivers. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. People try to make it really complicated but sometimes that's the best way to say it like hey see those weapons that you pay money for and they're super fast right <laughs> use those guys right totally all right i want to i want to circle back to russ for one second here because yeah. i want to ask you a question a couple of buddies and i were debating the other day and the premise for this conversation was how obvious it was that russ wasn't anywhere near himself when he admittedly rushed to get back on the field mm-hmm. one of my friends was contending that doing so was selfish If you know that you're not ready to go, why force your way back if it's going to hurt the team? My other buddy was saying it's on the coach to keep Russ out until he's actually ready. Like your, your star quarterback is saying, I'm ready to go. If you're seeing in practice that he's just missing on a bunch of throws, it's your job to say, not yet, pal. What are your thoughts on all that? Oh, I'm going with the former for sure. That it's that I have, there is like maybe one athlete maybe where I questioned like, did this athlete hold himself out? You, you will otherwise never, ever come across an NFL, like a professional athlete that'll be like, no, I'll wait another week. Yeah. I'll sit this one out. Like what Russell Wilson did. And I agree coming back too early, they should have played Geno Smith in that one. Like, I don't know that they would have won, but maybe they would have uh, gotten points. Who knows? Who can say, um, but they could have scored one <laughs> yeah. point. Who kn- I mean, <laughs> a field goal, maybe at least, I mean, that would have been better. Um, yeah. It's obvious in hindsight sight that Russell Wilson should not have played that game that they should have gone with Geno Smith I don't know a single quarterback much less a single player that would have said I'm gonna wait another week totally absolutely not totally and and so I you know I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that I want to give you a chance to chime in 
before my thoughts on it because I want my best player doing what Russell Wilson did. I don't want him to say, you know what, guys, I don't think so. If he feels like, hey, yeah, I'm not at my best, but I can still go win, you know, Michael Jordan flu game, whatever, is like, you, I want my best player. I want all of my players, but I want my best players to go. And, and if they feel like they can go, give it everything they have. And, and Russ, I think, has earned that. I, and I agree with my other buddy that, okay, yeah, it is on the coach to say, hey, I, this isn't working. But you have to make that decision before that first game. Because once Russ comes back, you can't put the toothpaste back in the yes. tube. Like You can't yes. be like, oh, now we're going to bench Russ. Now Russell Wilson is getting benched for the first time in his career. And now you've got all of this stuff to deal with. I think it was just a situation. Like, look, when you get a great player, you get everything that makes that player who they are. And for Russell Wilson, it is this insane, psychotic pursuit of smashing the record for recovery from mallet finger and doing all of these things. And it's just like, yeah, you know what? He wasn't ready. You just got to live with it. I think, I think it's just a product of the person that you have as the leader of your franchise and it burned them this time. But I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt to say like, Hey, if I'm ready, I'm going out there. And once you put him out there, that bell is rung. Yeah. Uh, I'm smiling. Cause I love that point. Like that one point about like, you get all of who a player is. You could apply that to his style of play. You could apply it to his mistakes. You could apply it to the things that people criticize him for. Like, I, I don't know what kind of product, what kind of player you're going to get that isn't going to bring some kind of risk, some kind of, uh, you know, other shoe dropping with everything that makes him so great. Enter Travis Homer. Get out of yeah, here, exactly Mike. Right. That's exactly right, Mike. You're right. Anyway, moving on to the defense. Mike, they got torched in the first half, Stacey, but they dominated the second half. What are your, it has been a wild ride for this defense this season, Man. for sure. I mean, like they were atrocious. They were so bad the first few games, and then they've been really good for most of the last seven. What, what have you seen with this defense as they've evolved, as they devolved? Is this a good defense? Let's start there. I think they're, yes, I think they're a good defense now. I think the biggest difference has been um, the secondary, particularly it's been Quandre Diggs outperforming his contract and it's been the cornerback room settling down. Like that to me is where the improvement has come from uh, because you're not seeing those sack numbers skyrocket the way they did last year. Um, you're not seeing them stop the run the way they did last year. Um, I think I really think it's coming like, from the secondary forward in terms of those improvements. That doesn't mean that your cornerbacks are your best players. Uh, I think that your best players are still, I mean, Quandre Diggs, um, you know, Bobby Wagner, who I think is having kind of like a weird year. Um, but that settling down has, uh, has let them kind of continue to remain steady in other areas. Uh, you know, what's weird about the defense is, I say that they're a great defense or that they're a really, really solid defense. If they were entering the year with this defense and I didn't know anything about what the offense would look like, I'd be like, this is a Super Bowl team. That's all I need. They need like a they need like a 15 overall defense. They need a, they need like maybe, maybe like a number 14, 13 defense and they're set. They're done. Maybe as low as 20. Who cares? And instead, the offense has been a dumpster fire. And, and, uh, and the defense, unfortunately, isn't good enough. It's not a number one defense. They're not going to carry this team. Um 
but yeah, so there's still just enough you'd want to tweak about it because of that. You know what I mean? Like it's, if, if it was just up to them to win this thing, there's, there's still some areas, and I'm sure you guys feel the same, where you'd say, okay, that does need to be better. But considering where they started, I don't know how you look at it and say they aren't good right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and to your point about always needing to tweak, I don't think that ever changes. I'm fond of no. saying that the NFL is the world's fastest learning organism. You've got dozens of coaches on every team being paid six figures to spend tens of hours a year look or a week looking for the weaknesses looking for the things that make their opponents great and how to counter that something that has worked for a while doesn't mean it's going to work in perpetuity and we've seen that I mean there's a case to be made that there's no good teams in the NFL this year like everyone's been figured out we've every team that you're looking at as a potential Super Bowl contender this year has had a three-game stretch where they've lost two of them like that just it just happens and it's happening more this year than ever before. So I think they've got a good basis. I think you're hundred percent right about it. Starting in the secondary Quandre Diggs has been the best Seahawk full stop this season. And I've always really liked him. I knew that he was good. I thought he was an amazing complimentary piece, but to see him just be the guy has been awesome. Like a bright spot in a season desperate for bright spots. I think Bobby Wagner's had, a weird year. I think that comes Are you with describing it. Bobby Wagner's year as weird? The both of you. I pose this question to the both of yeah, you. Yeah. Because you're butt hurt that he slandered mayonnaise in his press conference today? No, I hate mayonnaise. I thought yeah, that was, okay. I thought That's everything he said was completely right. Literally the only thing mayonnaise is good for is once in a while a light aioli. Yeah, like, it's a, it. it's aioli or bust. Like that's yeah. what it is. No, mayonnaise is disgusting. I'm glad that Bobby finally said something. Someone yeah. should have said something. We've been going we've been pretending for I don't even know how long, more than our lifetime, that mayonnaise is acceptable. He's got a $4 million uh, dead cap hit next year, and, you know, we've talked about the potential of him being released or restructured, but if anything, I think he deserves a raise now. For that. (laughs) I feel like like anytime I see the word aioli, it reminds me of the movie Joe Dirt when he tells... (laughs) <laughs> when David Spade tells him that it's pronounced dirte, and it's like, no, no, it's dirt. Like you can call mayo aioli if you want, but uh, it's it's mayo. It's mayonnaise. <laughs> but, so you're calling mayo dirt. That's the that's what I'm taking both away. Both things from that. are true. Both things are true. What I what I will say about Bobby Wagner is he's going to play more snaps this year than any player in NFL history has played in any given season. He hasn't missed a snap this season on a defense that is going to set a record for plays and minutes on a field. So we need to keep in mind that there's just literally never been a workload, much less for a middle linebacker who is involved on every play, regardless of runner pass that has surpassed what we're going to see from Bobby Wagner this year, barring an injury. So uh, that combined with the fact that, I mean, his total mileage count now in the NFL for a guy that's never hurt is always there in the middle of things who has the cerebral load of making all the calls and, and kind of being the glue on top of the physical demands. There's some grace there for the misstep here and there. We're also talking about a player that has gone entire seasons without missing a tackle, like leading the NFL in tackles without missing one. So, (laughs) I mean, it's almost like seeing a a hundred percent free throw shooter have a season where he shoots 94% from the line and being like, Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's the it's the expectation. Like I was thinking, Mike, when you were asking the question of like, okay, why did I use the word weird? And I think it's just because he's still 
Bobby Wagner, he's, I mean, he just had an interception this past Sunday. Um, and, uh, and he's also still got over a hundred tackles. So you think like, okay, on paper, there's still plenty that's, that's good. But when you are like this multi-time first team, all pro, you're one of the best players this franchise has seen. You're, you've been, uh, one of the best linebackers in the league. The bar suddenly, if Bobby Wagner was an undrafted rookie playing exactly the season he's having right now, we'd be like, wow, they really found something with this guy. This is, can you believe this? Yeah. And instead, because it's Bobby Wagner, we're like, oh, that was a weird decision he made. Like, he just got beat right over the top. What's going on? Some players are um, a victim of yeah. their own greatness. Uh, yeah. I think that about myself frequently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one really sad thing that came away from that game was Jamal Adams' shoulder injury. Same shoulder. It was announced today that he is done for the year. Jamal Adams has been a very incendiary topic for Seahawks fan base ever since they traded for him. I am on record as being supportive of the process behind the trade while understanding why someone might not be. My frustration has been with the team's seeming lack of a plan for him for a long time. I, I think that's only a trade you make if you know how you're going to deploy him and, and make him uh, be the type of guy you traded for. They've really, really struggled with that. But it was uh, tweeted out today by SIS Football. They were looking at some on-off stats for Jamal Adams when he's been on the field and when he hasn't been. And it's, it's pretty telling. For as much heat as he's taken, he had he had a couple of really rough games at the beginning of the season when it was very clear they did not have a clear plan for him. But when Jamal Adams has not been on the field, the opponent has a positive play percentage of 53%. That drops to 43% with him on the field. The sack rate goes from 3% to 7%. The yards per drop back drops by a full yard, and the yard per rush drops by half a yard when he's on the field. These are large aggregate numbers that can't be just chalked up to small sample size or anything like that. There is no question. This defense is not only better, they're a lot better when Jamal Adams is on the field than when he's not. Yeah, the same way we were talking about Bobby Wagner being a victim of his own success. It's like Jamal Adams is a victim of the deal that got him here. Mm -hmm. It was the same thing with Jimmy Graham, though there were different results with both of these players. And Jamal Adams also got an extension. So he asked for money from the team, whereas Jimmy Graham didn't. But like Jamal Adams... I see this argument a lot when it comes to Russell Wilson as well. There's a difference between I'm critiquing either the trade, I'm critiquing how they're using the player, and then critiquing or doubting the actual skill the player possesses. Um, and I think what you're seeing with Jamal Adams is way too often critiquing the actual skill he possesses uh, instead of, like you said, like not blitzing him nearly as often. And not only that, but Pete Carroll today being asked about it saying, you know, basically it it started to become where that wasn't effective because teams were just planning for it, so they just did it less. And it's like, all right, well then how else are you gonna use them? Yeah. <laughs> like then then what are you gonna do? Um so I'm I'm with you on where the critique is best suited. Like it's to me it should be should they have made the deal or not? In hindsight, like maybe no. And in, in in hindsight, maybe they'd be better with an offensive lineman or or doing whatever. But um Heading into the season, you thought this could be a Super Bowl team, maybe, and Jamal Adams is a hell of a player. So, like, he's going to make that defense better. And there's no reason that you can't enter next year thinking Jamal Adams is a hell of a player. I totally I totally agree. And, and honestly, I think that over the last two months, he's been everything 
you traded for. I mean, the defense has been a lot better because they found a way to use him, moving him up to the line of scrimmage and then away. I mean, even at the beginning of the season when they were started, like they didn't blitz him at all for the first, I think, four games. And then in the Pittsburgh, or first five games, really. And then in the Pittsburgh game, they finally started lining him up at the line of scrimmage almost every play, but it was always off the right side and it was always a straight speed rush. Like there was zero creativity to how they use him. It's like, okay, you want us to blitz him? Here he goes. And it was completely ineffective because there was no deception. Of course, because of course it was. Yeah, and, and, and you know, that's kind of one of my biggest knocks with the sort of coaching philosophy for this team is not that I don't believe in a lot of the messaging or even some of the strategic stuff. It's just, there's no emphasis on deception and it's deception is good in the NFL. Everyone's too smart and too good to just tell them what you're doing. And they've started moving them around and making it. So, uh, you know, quarterbacks don't necessarily know exactly what he's going to be doing based on how he lines up. But, the thing that I don't really have patience for the the criticism that I don't have is I seen a lot. And even today talking about how it was a quick fix, how it was, Oh, we'll trade the draft picks for a stop gap here or, or a shortcut type of thing. And I don't think that's true at all. I don't think that you trade for a 24 year old and then give him a four year extension as a quick fix. It absolutely was not that. And you know what? This is a lost season as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, maybe they run the table, sneak in at nine and eight. It honestly, if they do that, it would be great. I am rooting for that. It doesn't really cover up what I think the flaws with this team are, even if that were to happen. But this is lost season. It sucks that he's out. But I don't think it really changes anything about his role with the team moving forward. No, I don't either. Out of curiosity, uh, what are the flaws with the team too? Not enough Travis Homer. God damn it. I should have known that that was <laughs> Besides the obvious that Mike pointed out, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was was what I just touched on. There's, there's edges to be gained besides just out-executing your opponent. I think that... I think that Pete Carroll's teams have been able to out-execute their opponents for a long time. You saw it at USC. He out-recruited everybody. And so his guys were just better than the guys on the other side of the ball. And then he entered the NFL, and that coincided with John Schneider ripping off the greatest three-year stretch of drafting in my lifetime. And so he all of a sudden had a team that was just better. Like, yeah, we're going to run cover three and rush four, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it because we're better. And I think what's happened with that is the rest of the league has gone so deception-heavy. And there's other, there's other edges to be gained, moving quickly, going no huddle, keeping your offense in rhythm pre-snap motion, all that kind of stuff, Seattle doesn't do. Like the in-between play stuff, getting out of the huddle early. How many times have we had to see this team take timeouts that they absolutely shouldn't because they're late getting out of the huddle? We've seen them take delay of games and burn timeouts coming out of timeouts because yes. they're not ready to go. Like, <laughs> I was gonna say. like those are those are the little things. It's disguising your defense. It's running some stunts once in a while, you know? These are the strategic things that I think are the flaws in the philosophy of this team. Oh, that's a really good point. My immediate thought always goes to personnel uh, rather than overall. I love the point about deception. Uh, and also the point about, you know, other things like up-tempo wouldn't, uh, going te- up-tempo wouldn't be like necessarily deception, but they were going to do it. All we heard about was up-tempo and then you've barely seen it. And not only that. They did it for a game and a half and it was awesome. It. And it was wonderful. And I, I was, um, I think uh, Mike Salk was saying 
um, something about like, well, yeah, up-tempo works because a lot of teams use it in a two-minute drill when the defense is playing a prevent defense. But it's like, no, up-tempo can also work when you have it just kind of sporadically throughout your game. Or you've seen other offenses uh, that that can work using tempo. Um, the point is you're just dispersing it uh, throughout your game or uh, using it to get leverage in certain moments. It's about when you use it. It, and, it is. Um, yeah, and uh, and it's been weird to not see them tap back into that. I think I think it's an excellent point. It I'm not saying like, oh, they need to be this hurry up Chip Kelly run 90 plays a game team. No. That's not not what I'm saying at all. But there are times where if you catch yourself in an advantageous personnel situation where you've got more wide receivers on the field than they have defensive backs, or vice versa, and you're in a heavy situation and they're not. By running hurry up, by not going to the huddle, the defense does not have a chance to substitute out. You can prolong a positional advantage by going no huddle, and they just don't do it. And that would be fine if they were more deliberate coming out of the huddle, but they're not deliberate. They don't get to the line in time to make checks, to switch up the play if they need to. And that, to me, is frustrating. Well, I don't know where that stems from, right? Like, that's where you get to, is this a, is this... Waldron it can't be just Waldron they've dealt with it before it predates this year, him so yeah. it's not it predates Waldron is it Carroll is it Wilson you go back and forth you can't I, I it's I think it's more of like in the game some of that is on Wilson I agree but but a a coach and OC should be hammering that home and being like we need to not do that and I just have a hard time believing like I I think that Russell Wilson is well above average to elite at most of the things that you want a quarterback to do. It doesn't mean he's without his blind spots, without his weaknesses. You mentioned throwing to the middle of the field. We're 10 years in. He's just never been great at throwing in the middle of the field. He, he almost avoids it. And you know what? That's something that hurts you from a strategic standpoint. Defenses can cheat to the edges. But I have a hard time believing someone who is so diligent, so sharp, so educated within the game of football has yet to develop the ability to get to the line early and make audibles. Like we just don't see the Seahawks calling audibles hardly ever. And that is always been so bizarre to me. And I don't know if that stems from the whole, we're just going to out execute you. Doesn't matter if you know what's coming or maybe it is just a deficiency. Russell Wilson has maybe somehow a top five quarterback for the last 10 years is incapable of going to the line of scrimmage and diagnosing defense. I just find that hard to believe. I, I do too. I think that that stems more of like a how Pete Carroll would want the the control that Pete Carroll or the offensive coordinator would or wouldn't want. Or, I mean, Russell Wilson started his career here in Seattle, so it could just be one of the things that never transitioned as he got older. Like, yeah, we're going to give you a little control, more control with X, Y, and Z, or, uh, you know, we're going to tilt the offense in your favor with, with uh, you can't say with pass protection, but, um, but it never continued to evolve into letting him call. And you know that he wants to. Like, you know that he wants to, because how many times have we talked about, like, a headset mysteriously going out? <laughs> Russ. I love that. I want, that's, like, one of my favorite things ever. Yeah. One of my favorite conspiracy theories is Russell Wilson just being like, yeah, the headset broke in Cleveland, so I just called that drive. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I think that might have been a rushing touchdown. Too. Yeah. All right. So this team is sitting at four and eight. I think it's safe to say that most of us, and not just Seahawks fans, did not foresee this at the beginning of the season. So. I want to ask you what your perspective is on this team's general vibe and direction and how that compares to what your answer would have been if I had asked you before game one. 
Okay. Uh, I'll tell you, before game one, I was saying um, this is a team that uh, I don't know that they're a Super Bowl team. I don't think they had a top five roster. Um, But I expected them to be able to push at least to a conference championship. It felt like you have to get back there. You have Bobby Wagner, who's only going to get older, Russell Wilson, who may not be here next year. And you have enough weapons around you that you would think, like, can you get to the divisional round? Can you win a divisional round game? Like, can you continue to to advance past that? So that was kind of where I expected them to maybe, like, lose in the playoffs. Did not expect them, certainly, to be at four wins. And if you were to tell me in September, hey, by the way, they're going to be at 4-8 at one point. I think Russell Wilson tore his ACL. Like, I think he he went out in, like, week two, and this this has to be what happened. The fact that, yes, they've lost Chris Carson, but they've otherwise got, like, a fairly healthy team. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. They aren't a healthy team, but they've got DK. They've got Tyler. Russell Wilson is back after missing a month. Um, and, by the way, he was struggling a little bit before the injury. Uh, I think... Yeah, I would have been in disbelief. And um, knowing the offense, here's the thing. I'm, I'm curious to see how you guys feel about this. If I go through my expectations for the season for each individual player, I feel like it kind of makes sense. Quandre Diggs led the team in interceptions with five last year. He's got four this year. We knew Quandre Diggs would be great. Uh, Dwayne Brown, obviously, like that hasn't met expectations. But like DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, they're still – great Mm -hmm. they aren't being targeted as much they don't have as many yards it's not working out but um there's no one player i can think of that is vastly underperforming outside of the offensive line struggling and and yet my expectation was so much higher Mm -hmm. for them this season i know it's it's weird and there's been a lot of people that and and i'm not to say that this argument is without validity who have said well your star quarterback was out for three games and then hurt for three games. So how much can you judge that team? Well, they're three and three with a fully healthy Russell Wilson. We're going to call this last game a healthy Russell Wilson. Maybe not fully, but close enough. He played great. They were two and three before he got hurt. They're now three and three with him fully healthy. They went one and five in the other games. Like, yeah, teams get worse when your star quarterback gets hurt. But if you have a good team, that's well coached. You should do better than one in five, especially considering the teams that they played during that stretch. Well, and one thing I, that I should have accounted for heading into this year that I didn't because I had the assumption the defense is leaving the season and they aren't losing a lot of personnel other than Shaquille Griffin isn't coming back, Jaron Reed isn't coming back. Why can't they just kind of pick up where they left off? Defenses typically start slowly, so like maybe it'll take them a while. But, you know, if you talk about, uh, let's say, Russell Wilson being three and three or whatever, I think we can point to Tennessee in, in Minnesota and say if the defense starts the year off where they are now or if the defense starts the year off strong then they don't have those losses and so one thing I didn't account for wasn't necessarily that like you know a player would vastly underperform or injuries it was that wow they're really going to do this thing again where the offense falls apart and then the, they're great and then the defense falls apart and they're great like they're really wow how'd they plan that like that's wild that it's they the managed to do that thing. two years in a row it's, it's almost thing. impressive so we've referred to this season as lost what percentage of the blame for that designation would you place on russell wilson getting hurt oh um 40 to 50 percent. I, I was gonna say 50 percent, and if i say 50 percent, it means that I still would think then, after seeing them this year, that a fully healthy Russell Wilson would have them at like a 500 record. 
essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe they're six and six with a fully healthy Russell Wilson. Yeah. Would we be satisfied with that? Would we say, oh yeah, the direction? Absolutely not. The direction's good. Absolutely not. I think that the problems with this team have been beyond just Russell Wilson being hurt. They've been uh, clearly struggles with uh, the offense coming together with the offensive line struggling. Uh, you lost Chris Carson. I mean, maybe I add a game or so if you have Carson and that becomes a different conversation, but the NFL is not a game of perfect health. It's not about who has the, you know, five best players. It's about depth and it's about system, right? You see some teams lose good players and the step that they lose is a lot smaller than what we've seen with Seattle. We saw them lose a running back and the rushing game disappear entirely, right? We saw them not have the ability to game plan for uh, an injured quarterback. They've been so lucky to go a decade without Russell Wilson ever missing any time. I would say best case scenario, they're seven and five right now. And I wouldn't be feeling okay. great about it. If the, if the Seahawks were fully healthy, fully healthy and seven and five, I would not feel great. Would we then turn to Shane Waldron? I mean, what would we turn to? In hindsight. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, we're we're deep in the theoretical weeds here, but I know we're talking about situations. Let's say Russell Wilson is fully healthy. Yeah. What are your thoughts seven on the multiverse? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here's here's what I would say. It's a new system that is fundamentally different in theory than all of the offenses that Russell Wilson has run in the pros prior. There were a lot of similarities between the Daryl Bevel offense and the Brian Schottenheimer offense. And of course, the question that hangs over all of it is how much of it was really the OC versus what Pete wanted to do. But Shane Waldron is a different language, a different tempo, a different style entirely than what Russell Wilson has had before, than what any of these players besides Gerald Everett has had before. And so... You know, I think maybe if they were seven and five, I think that we would see an offense that was a lot more coherent than what we've seen. And I, I do think losing the signal caller when you're learning a new offense exacerbates the problem for sure. But I think that this team has been for a long time the victim of coaching that's just far too conservative for the modern NFL. I think that it underscores to some degree a lack of trust in the quarterback and in the offense in general to go. For, I mean, when you're punting on fourth and anything less than five on the opponent's 40 yard line or closer, that's, it's bad coaching. In my opinion, it's, it's the clock management. It's the wasted timeouts. It's the bad challenges. It's those little things that don't show up in a stat sheet, but that, affect the odds of success on high leverage plays. And you just, you can't take bad process into those moments forever. And I think that Russell Wilson has been a security blanket for that philosophy for a long time. And that got removed. And I think everything got exposed. I think he was a rug that a lot of things had been swept under and the rug got taken away. Well, and if you're pointing to your team and you're saying, if Russell Wilson isn't elite, if Russell Wilson isn't playing like an MVP, suddenly you can see a lot of warts, you don't have a good team. Like, you don't have a great roster. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, you want to talk about the run game, you can turn to Baltimore as a perfect example of a team that's kept going. Now, they aren't the best example. Actually, I take it back because they're kind of built for the run and, and schemed around Lamar Jackson's strengths. But San Francisco, uh, another team that's gone without their running backs. And if you lose Chris Carson and... 
you're suddenly turning to, you know, Rashad Penny and he's not giving you anything. Let's let's be honest. Yards before contact don't exist in this offense and they haven't for a while. And that's the goal of a running game. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it it is that kind of like ultimate irony of a coach that b- truly believes in that balance, believes in in the run setting up the pass and uh and they haven't been able to capitalize on it. Really. I mean, certainly since Chris Carson at his best, but but maybe since Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. And I mean, generational talents at a given position are always great. It does not mean that the coaching behind them is bad necessarily, but you hope to not see precipitous fall off once the great player is removed from the equation. And it is something that I think great coaches are able to do. I think that I think that Pete Carroll is still a good coach. I would take him over a slight majority of the NFL coaches right now. I do not think he is currently an elite coach. I think he was. And I think for me, that is the hardest part. If Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll is Mike McCarthy right now. Let's, let's be honest. That is who he is, but it's not always who he was. When he first came into the league, he coached like he was still trying to impress AP voters. He was kicking the shit out of teams every opportunity (laughs) that he got. He wanted to win by 40 if he could. And at some point that morphed into a, let's keep the game close, let's shorten it, and let's win in those high leverage moments. And he's got the perfect quarterback for that. And and I think that's kind of my frustration is, is seeing the timid play calling on fourth down, which to me belies a lack of trust in your quarterback. And I cannot imagine that Russell Wilson hasn't felt that to some degree. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And, and I think too, like that's part of the hesitancy. I would imagine someone like Jody Allen has with, um, if you do decide to move on from Pete Carroll, who do you hire in the interim? You know, who do you bring in? Um, and what if it's not the right person? And totally. I wonder if the people that are most reticent to move on from Carroll, it's almost like um, if if the Mariners were to get to a World Series and win a World Series, and then let's say that for years they just, they, they aren't like mediocre, but they're just kind of like, you know, yeah. not really getting deep into the playoffs and, and you feel like you're not taking advantage of talent. And let's say that like a generation of, because I think that some of this does divide on generational lines. Uh, let's say that there's a group of Mariners fans that say, move on from Jared Apoto, move on from Scott Service. I've had enough. Ditch these guys. There's probably a part of particularly an older fan base that says, have you guys seen the Mariners before yeah, these two? Totally. Like you, you don't want to risk and roll the dice and risk going back there because you could. It could happen. Yep. And I think that that's how a lot of people feel about Carroll and the Seahawks. I, I think that's exactly it. And I think it speaks to I, – I think a lot of times – this conversation, this Russ versus Pete, this should Carol stay, should he go conversation just comes down to what is the minimum that you're going to accept as a fan? And for me, I would rather risk the four and 13 season if it meant a Super Bowl ceiling. I think that with a health, healthy Russell Wilson, a Pete Carroll coach team is going to win 10 games or more every year and not be a true contender for a Super Bowl. I just don't see it. And for me, I would rather risk the floor that Pete Carroll provides to gain a ceiling that doesn't exist with him here. And if it means you, the next coach you bring in is a miss and the team sucks for a year, and we saw it with Jim Mora Jr., move on. Move on after one year. 
everybody wants this job. Everybody wants to coach Russell Wilson and DK Metcalf and be in a city that supports its team like Seattle and prove that you can win on the NFL stage, whether that's a coordinator or, or maybe a coach that struggled at the NFL level in the past or a college coach. But that was one thing. I mean, one thing that I've loved about Allen family ownership is the willingness to take a big swing. They brought, they, they went out and got Mike Holmgren when he was the king of NFL coaches and it went really well for a while and brought Seattle to a level of success that they had never seen before. They didn't quite win a Super Bowl, but they got damn close and they were the best team in the NFL one season. That had never happened before. And then it was clear that he was not going to be the future. So they brought in Jim Moore Jr., kind of groomed him for the job. It became very clear he wasn't the guy. So they moved on and they took a big swing with Pete Carroll. Like, if the next guy isn't the guy, you're not married to him for five years. Like, you can just cut bait and keep keep going. And, and I think that's what I would like to see. I am willing to risk the floor for a higher ceiling, I think is how I would boil down my thoughts on the coaching situation in Seattle. Yeah, and what's made the Pete Carroll in particular a curious situation is if we're going to critique personnel and we're going to critique drafting, well, he's also been part of that. And so you, it, to me, it is hard for me to separate some of my biggest con- concerns with this team from Pete Carroll, even if seemingly they wouldn't have anything to do with the head coach. Yep. Although I also have a problem sometimes with in-game decision-making, so it's kind of twofold. Um, but yeah, I mean, he has a very rare ability to... Uh, not just like charm a room, but to um, get people to buy in. And uh, he's not uh, unique in being a head coach that requires buy-in for his program to really work. That's Mm -hmm. every head coach ever. Either you win all the time and people have no choice but to respect you, or you get people to believe in you. Like, that's how you get a locker room. Um, I just, I don't know at what point you can get to where that's enough. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought that up, Stacey, because one thing that I feel like I don't give enough life to in this conversation is Pete Carroll's ability to get buy-in and his messaging. He coaches exactly from, from a motivational standpoint. I shouldn't say he mm-hmm. coaches exactly the way I want a coach to coach. Cause that's not true, but he motivates exactly the way that I want a coach to motivate. Like I'm not into like every Belichick, works because Belichick is the most brilliant football mind since I've been alive. I mean, look at what he's doing right now with this team, but every single one of his protégés goes and tries to be Bill Belichick by being an asshole and making his team run wind sprints and punishing them and doing all of these imitative things of Bill Belichick and their teams fucking hate him, and they have terrible records and they move on. Like the Belichick coaching tree sucks as far as their yeah. win and loss record goes. Does that mean that the Seahawks have vicariously Bill Belichick to thank for Quandre Diggs? Yes, absolutely. Because he could not stand Matt Patricia. Yes. There's no <laughs> question about it. So I think, I think that it's one of those things where like, okay, you don't, Belichick's the greatest, but you don't just try and be him. Like, I don't want my coach to try and be Bill Belichick. He's just smarter than everybody else. And let's be real. It doesn't work without the winning. No. Like, yeah, he, he, he required, it, it was necessary that he be brilliant in the beginning of his tenure to get people to buy in. But right now, if you're a new player being drafted there, you're like, it's Bill Belichick. Like I, like no one has won. Like he has won of late in like, you know, the last 20 years. Totally, totally right. And you've seen 
numbers of players. I mean, I always think of Cassius Marsh talking about going and playing. Talking about how it's in sucked. New England. It's like, <laughs> it sucks. Like, I wanted to quit football. It was not fun anymore because he came from Seattle, which is the most fun. If anyone listening has ever gone to a Seahawks training camp, like, you see, it is a party when you're there. It's a blast. If you haven't gone, you should go. It is so much fun. Well, and this is why you wish that they could find a way. Do I think this? I, I don't know that I even think this. I think I know I, what you're going to say. I know. You wish that they could find a way to capture everyone's strengths while taking away the things people don't do well. I don't think... You can't do that Pete with Carroll the head coach. Seems, it, I know, it requires I know. too much control. Pete, you can't tell Pete Carroll, like, hey, Pete, listen, I know that we've given you uh, almost unilateral decision-making. What we're going to do is not... <laughs> Well, you can't, you can't do it. Right. It's like, then it's basically like having a Dallas Cowboys head coach. Like it's Jerry Jones coaching, you know, like it's, it's something where, Hey Pete, we want you to motivate these guys all off season, preseason long. And And then, (laughs) and then we're going to hand over all the decision-making like, like part of the reason the buy-in works is because he is the guy calling the shots. Right. right? And so, yeah, it's just, it's a tough thing. I love the way he motivates. It's, you know, we had, Matt Nichols on earlier this year, who's a, a collegiate offensive lineman, all-conference national champion. He played at Pacific Lutheran University. I got a chance to play at Pacific Lutheran University. And their coach, Frosty Westering, is one of the winningest coaches in the history of football at any level. And he coaches so much the way, or coached so much the way that Pete Carroll does. It's positive motivation. It's servant leadership. It's building people up. It's getting this enthusiasm. Enthusiasm first, football next. And I love that. Like, that was such an invigorating part of my life. I love that Pete Carroll coaches that way. I will be sad if the next coach doesn't have that. But we know what championship football looks like now. And to your point about the Mariners, like, yeah, of course. We would venerate any coach that got Seattle, the Seattle Mariners back to the playoffs until they win a World Series. And then if they start to suck again or even just be average again, the patience level is different. And well, here's the thing. It's your right to do that. Too. Totally. Like when it, it's totally. not my biggest pet peeve, but a pet peeve of mine is this idea of like, you're being ungrateful. You're being ungrateful by wanting more from your team. And it's like, by, by criticizing what's clearly been a problem, you're being ungrateful. Here's what I, I want to ask like, those people. What, what's the cutoff? Is it in perpetuity? Hey, right. if you want a Super Bowl, you get to coach this team till you're 90 if you want. You can run this team into the ground. You 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 get a Lombardi and you're allowed to just crash and burn. Totally. And and I I think all the time like at some point it became clear Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy weren't going to be able to coexist anymore. Imagine if the Packers chose Mike McCarthy over Aaron Rodgers. And and I think Carroll's a better coach than McCarthy, but I don't think the gap's huge. And I I think I think Rodgers is a little better than Wilson, but I think that gap is extremely small. And and that's just kind of the fulcrum that I see this team at. So with that in mind, with that being the framework, there is a new ripple of Russell Wilson rumors that emerged today, this time with it being reported. And I say that word with the heaviest of quotation marks. (laughs) It is on social media that he'd consider waiving his no trade clause for the Giants, Broncos and Saints. And I want to be clear that currently there does not appear to be very much meat on this bone, but it does harken back to the reports of his discontent that dominated NFL storylines the past offseason. What are your thoughts on the rumor and on Wilson's future in Seattle from your viewpoint? Uh, I am not uh, buying too much into this rumor. I'm 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 not thinking that this is something where Mark Rogers has gone to 
uh, this reporter and said, this is what's happening. Hey, let me remind you this. Like, I, I, I do not think that's where it's coming from. Um, I also like there was the one about Philly uh, coming out from Adam Schefter. And there's just certain locations where you're like, why Denver now remove whether or not I think the report has legitimacy. Denver as a landing spot would make sense. Like that's where we all thought Aaron Rodgers would get traded. They've got a lot of weapons around them. Uh, How funny it would be if Russ got traded to the team that has the biggest boomer of all time as their coach. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> He'd be gone. Can you imagine? He'd be gone. Um, or going to an offensive-minded head coach like Sean Payton with the Saints makes sense, but they're also in a cap nightmare. So they it's are. like, do you guys have room for them? So, so there's a feasibility question with New Orleans, even if the head coach-quarterback combination makes sense. He loves Drew Brees, uh, and he's worked out with Drew Brees. Like, he has a good relationship with totally. him. Totally. Um, but... Two of those landing spots make sense, um, but I don't buy that this rumor is coming from, like, Russell Wilson leaking it. The way last year where it was like, yeah, this is literally Mark Rogers telling Adam Schefter this news. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, I don't know why still you did that, but yeah, that's, to each his own. That, that's my impression of this. I mean, if, if stuff comes out to corroborate it, then, you know, we'll we'll revisit it then. But it, it does bring up the thought on on Russell Wilson's kind of future that that is the shadow that's hanging over all of this it was even if the team was eight and four it would be hanging over this team but at four and eight it it's a darker shadow so Stacy final topic before we get out of here it's the hardest topic <laughs> Jody Allen gives you the keys okay. to the franchise for one off season no, don't do that <laughs> what moves are you making if any Oh, man. Um, first of all, I'm getting rid of Action Green. Secondly, let's get to actual let's go. personnel decisions. Let's go. This is... <laughs> Thank all right. This is Thank a movement you. I can get behind. Oh, God. Okay. Um, I'm, the, I'm secretly kind of glad they finally lost a game in Action Green so we can get rid of the whole... So we can they stop never hearing lo- about this. <laughs> it, makes the, it makes the field look dirty. It, it does. I, I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Thank you so much for validating me. Um, yeah, I... Uh, I God, this is going to sound like... What I'm just going to say, I'm going to Russell Wilson and I'm saying, what's making you stay here? Like, what, how do I get you to stay here? And it's not because I don't think we've, we just talked for like 15 minutes about how brilliant we, how, how wonderful Pete Carroll is. Absolutely. Um, And it's just that even a Russell Wilson that is not the very best version of Russell Wilson you've ever seen is better than like. 90% of the other quarterbacks available. And last time I checked, you don't have a first round pick. So I don't know who you think you're going to like waltz into the draft and pick. And if you want to go ahead and like trade Russell Wilson for picks, start building up your team and then go for an interim quarterback. Sure. That's fine. But like, we've kind of seen the the Vikings take that approach. Like we've, we've seen other teams try to take that approach and I can't think of one that's actually had it pay off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, recently. it's easy to say hey, he's only one player how many teams have won a Super Bowl recently with a highly paid quarterback? Those are valid. Yeah, but questions. how many have done it without a franchise quarterback? That's what I'm. And I think, that's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I think people too often they don't romanticize how good the defense was for Seattle in 2013. It would legitimately was a great defense. Yep. But I do think they undersell how good Russell Wilson was. Yep. And they think like get that formula. Just get all you have to do. Easy peasy. 
draft a couple Hall of Fame defensive backs. Check. <laughs> Go find like two fantastic edge rushers in free agency for nothing. Check, check. Uh, and then go ahead and get like a rookie quarterback that you're not paying anything to. And oh, also, uh, what you want to do is go ahead and make a trade with another team that has a, a a phenomenal running back that they aren't really aware of or yeah. don't know how to fourth use. Ra- fourth go round pick for Marshawn Lynch, no problem. Done, and that's the formula. <laughs> right. Hey, they've already won up that they got Travis Homer for <laughs> oh a my fifth, God. So what can oh, I say? I like that it's full circle. Yeah, I no, I I'm, I'm with you. You know, it is just. It's one of those things where, yeah, you get a lot of capital by trading Russell Wilson. You get draft picks. You free up cap space. But you have to spend that wisely. And I think you have to spend it brilliantly. Whatever. Okay, so you free up $30 million and you get a couple of first-round draft picks. Say they're even good first-round draft picks. You can't miss on any of it. You have to allocate all of that almost perfectly to get your team into a better situation than you have by just having a 33-year-old Russell Wilson, in my opinion. So I co-sign your off-season plan. (laughs) Well, and you have to get things that work. Like, if you think of examples of teams that have rebuilt and then gone to get the quarterback, you can look at San Francisco, who used a a bunch of first-round picks. They had shoring up that defense. You can look at Tampa Bay, who did the same. Not only did did Tampa Bay in particular find the exact right quarterback for them in free agency, and oh, by the way, he's like the best quarterback ever in history, Um, but you also had both San Francisco and Tampa Bay with a head coach and kind of from the top down where all the pieces in place were also primed and ready to take advantage of all the weapons they had. Yeah. Like, can you say that with the the coaching in place in Seattle right now? Well, and and – a team having a bunch of cap space and a bunch of great draft picks is not a new phenomenon. It's not like there aren't two or three teams every single year that are in that situation. And most of them stay really bad. Like it is really, really hard to set up the right collection of dominoes in the right order to get all of that to pay off. To your point about villainizing Russell Wilson's contract. Yeah. Russell Wilson was cheap when they won a Super Bowl. You know who else was cheap? Earl Thomas and Camp Chancellor, and Richard Sherman, and Michael Bennett, and Cliff Averill, and on, and on, and on. They were cheap everywhere. They had, they had like the highest paid offensive line in the NFL that year because they had the money for it. They weren't paying any of their best players top of the line contracts. I want to rip out my hair. I get into so many debates with people about like, well, if they, like, I've never rooted so hard for Aaron Rodgers to win a Super Bowl in my life. <laughs> okay. Exp- <laughs> expound so on that. Me. You can say someone did it. You can be like, look at this high paid quarterback mm-hmm. who actually won a Super Bowl. Look, I see what you're saying. It, okay. Uh, like same with like Patrick Mahomes, like I, Patrick Mahomes. Anyway, I just want a, a incredibly well-paid quarterback to win a Super Bowl just so that argument can die. Because the thing is like Russell Wilson does having that $35 million contract make team building difficult absolutely can you win a super bowl without a franchise quarterback i don't know like i i don't know the answer to that really unless you have i don't know like the 2001 raven like unless you have just a era defining side of the ball but but also like the idea that russell wilson's contract is keeping them from making moves was wrong for 2013 and it's kind of wrong now like they've still signed for agents they just haven't worked out I've said before, it's easier for me to see a path to winning a Super Bowl with Russell Wilson than it is for me to see a path to them winning a Super Bowl without him. And if there are things or people in place 
that make him lean towards not being here in the future, then I would put my effort into changing those things before I would put my effort into changing the Russell Wilson thing. Now, question for you. If our friend Jody came to you and said, I'm actually giving you the keys. Close person. I don't know what the keys unlock. I'm just giving you the keys. It means you're the decision maker. (laughs) She's cutting Travis Homer just to spite me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I was going to say. Well, after his performance this year, he's going to cost too much. Very true. Now, we both know that that you're going to keep Russell Wilson. You're going, you're basically, you're going to Russell Wilson saying, can we make this work with everyone here? If not, then like, what do we need? What are you doing at head coach? What are you doing if he says, I'm not being here without Pete Carroll? Like, then what's your next move? Or, excuse me, I'm not being here with Pete Carroll. If if it's that binary, and and I'm guilty of, of painting it as such at times, um, I'm, I'm sure it's more nuanced than that. But if it's that binary for the sake of the discussion, um, I'm asking him what he wants in the next head coach. And I'm not letting him choose the head coach, but he's absolutely going to be involved in that process because he is the most important person to the franchise's success. And if you have a problem with that being a player and not a coach, then, you know, we're talking about a philosophical difference, but you have to, at some point, defer to your greatest assets. And Russell Wilson is that for sure. So keeping Russ saying, what's it going to take for you to want to sign your next contract here, not just be here next year, but to sign another extension here and play out your prime in Seattle. Because the dominoes that fall from that matter so much. And the biggest one is DK Metcalf. You have a chance to have the coolest player in the NFL on your team for his entire prime and match him with a quarterback that's going to help him continue to get better. If Russ is gone, I don't know what keeps DK Metcalf here. And if DK Metcalf is gone, okay, great. There's some extra money. But like now your team's not interesting at all. And I've often said... You can be good and exciting. That's the ideal. And the Seahawks were that for a long time. You can be good and boring. Hell, you can even be bad and exciting. But you cannot be bad and boring. And the dominoes that fall when you lose Russell Wilson lean towards being bad and boring. And I cannot abide by that. So I'm keeping Russ. I'm finding out what it takes. I'm involving him in the coaching search. Knowing and telling Russell Wilson, hey, all right. We're going to work with you on this one. If it doesn't work out, just know we're willing to cut bait on the next coach quickly. Paul and I talked about this a little bit. I love Bobby Wagner. He's going to go down as one of the probably five greatest Seahawks of all time. One of the greatest middle linebackers who's ever played. But I think that for $4 million, that frees up some capital to extend Quandre Diggs. You've got two, maybe three cornerbacks you feel good about that are very cheap. Now you've got some money while keeping Russell Wilson to extend DK Metcalf, you're still going to have some money as the cap continues to balloon to shore up your offensive line, to shore up your defensive line, because Seattle has struggled in the trenches lately. And I think it's really, really important to reestablish the ability to win close to the ball. Those would be the steps I would take. I love those steps. Those are great steps. Now, Thank what, you. what now, out of curiosity, what does happen with Travis Homer? I mean, is he part of this plan or? Well, you build the offense around him. Okh that's what That's I thought. A He's your Derrick Henry. Caliber player right That's exactly right. That's exactly. It's it's one of those things where it's like without Travis Homer, what's the Seahawks' identity? I genuinely don't know. They are faceless in the crowd. Losing without Travis. the answer is losing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Four and eight with Travis Homer. Could you imagine them without him? Exactly. You want to talk about running backs who matter? It's only I sure there's don't. one. It's just. <laughs> 
right. All right. All right. Well, that, that's going to put a bow on the Travis Homer episode. The Seahawks are not officially dead from a playoff standpoint, but the overwhelming likelihood that they won't be participating in the postseason does give us some room to see what decisions get made in a way that differs from the championship pushes we're accustomed to this time of year. It's going to be very fascinating to watch. I want to thank you for coming in, Stacey. You guys, this was a blast. I will come back anytime, as long as next time maybe we don't talk about Travis Homer as much. This is kind of like my limit. I can make <laughs> zero promises on okay, the Okay, that's fine. I, I, I will still, I would still be happy to. This has been a blast. <laughs> that's great. We have absolutely loved having you on. We would definitely have you back. Tell the people where they can find more of you. Uh, so you can listen to uh, me and my co-host Jake Heaps from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on 710 ESPN Seattle. I say it like a close every time. I'm so used to saying it on air. And then uh, you can also follow me at Stacy Rost on Twitter. And that is R-O-S-T. And if you like... R-O-S-T. That's right. If you like today's show, make sure you're following Stacy because... What you got today is what you're going to get from her. She is one of the best, most delightful people doing it. And as always, I want to thank you, the listener, for subscribing to the show, reading the Cigar Thoughts articles, and for spreading the love on social media. And speaking of, you can find me on Twitter at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. You can follow Mike at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. And of course, you can listen to the show and read every article at fugles.com slash Cigar Thoughts. We are doing audio readings of the article after every game, so you'll be able to listen to it on the go if that's easier for you. We're also doing Twitter Live at the halftime of every show. We can even talk about the fact that they're playing the Texans this week. They have a game this week. It's against the Texans. Uh, we'll be going live at halftime. It's a chance for you to ask some questions, get my thoughts on how the first half is going, what we're looking for in the second half. And if you have a moment, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your preference. We're really proud of and grateful for the tremendous amount of support that we've gotten. Uh, I can't believe the effort that Mike specifically puts into this show every week. Super grateful for that. And the feedback you guys are giving us uh, really does give us life for the show and, and helps keep the momentum building. So that's the show for today. Really looking forward to next week. And I once again want to say thank you to Stacy for coming in. This was awesome.